Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. In this episode, I speak to Paco Olervides, who is the first interim executive director for Green Leadership Trust. I was interested in Paco's story because he started off as a traditional scientist assessing the impacts of boat noise on gray whale behavior to working in building capacity of boards for environmental organizations in the U.S. and throughout Latin America. And his story was uplifting to me because he has been able to explore his curiosity in other sectors of the environmental space and wasn't necessarily limited to jobs that were related to his formal training. We also talk about Green Leadership Trust, which is a program that provides support to people of color and indigenous people who serve on environmental boards. And we go into detail on how the trust provides that kind of support. I'm excited to bring Paco's story to you. So let's get started. Thank you so much, Paco, for making time for us today. I really appreciate it. And also for making time earlier on to just get to know you a little bit more. So I thought we could just get started with learning more about what got you passionate about environmental issues. Well, as many people's journeys, it started at a young age with my parents having us do constant uh, family trips, camping trips. I grew up in Mexico City, so any opportunity to go out to the countryside was exciting and welcomed. And uh, I think the pivotal moment was at the age of 13 when uh, my father introduced me to scuba diving on a family trip. And then that definitely turned me into a diehard marine biologist enthusiast. Mm. Okay, so what was your focus in that area of study? I eventually became a student of uh, marine biology in uh, Mexico, Monterey Tech, and then specialized in grad school on bioacoustics of marine mammals. So I was studying the impacts of boat noise on whale behavior. And that was in Mexico, sorry, in Monterey, Mexico. Uh, Monterey Tech was my undergraduate school, and then my graduate work was at Texas A&M University. Ah, great. Go Aggies. So what was your experience in that graduate program? What was it like as an individual who had come over to the U.S. to study, but had grown up outside of the U.S.? Uh, Fortunately... Since at an earlier age, we also did trips uh, to the United States with my family, uh, Disney World, uh, Epcot Center. My father actually worked in, in Delaware for a while, so I was familiarized with the American culture. So at, at grad level, there was just the, the pains of being by yourself, being away from, from family and food. Mostly that's what I missed. So the cultural aspects. But Texas A&M is pretty large and has a large component of international students. So that's what I gravitated towards. So even though I was away from home and away from from my family, I was able to adapt, adjust, and be comfortable in grad school as an international student. Yeah. One of my experiences 
going to school here in the U.S., undergrad and grad school, was uh, familiarizing myself with the academic system, trying to figure out what courses I needed to take. And it was helpful to have peers to have those type of conversations, but also professors who had experience sort of in the real world on what kind of courses would be useful to them. Did you get any sort of guidance while you were in grad school of that type? Yes, my advisors were very useful and uh, also paternal in a sense in looking after me. One advisor particularly, his wife was very concerned about my health and and, and even my my dating life, how I was doing. So they did uh, offer some some help there in a in a personal setting. But even before grad school, I, I remember a, a colleague helping me think about going to grad school on how I should approach it in terms of thinking of a, of a research problem, thinking of a, of a research tool to be able to address that problem. And then, of course, thinking of, a, of an organism to work on. So those were the questions that he suggested that I answer to be able to to determine what to do in grad school. And I was balancing between working on genetics, which I was very interested in, or sound, acoustics. And I thought uh, acoustics would be easier, but uh, there was a lot of engineering in it. So that, that was difficult for me, very high-level math. And I, I did struggle for a, a few courses, but eventually, and again, thanks to my advisors and some colleagues, which in, in, in our lab, you imagine, immediately develop friendships, and informal mentoring, I was able to learn the tool, learn the craft, and finish my degrees. Mm. Yeah, I can. I don't know much about acoustics, but just you explaining it gives me a little bit more understanding on the, the, the details and the nuances of it. What about acoustics was more interesting to you compared to genetics? Well, just uh, I think it was more like the hands-on. Uh, even though whale sounds are not all that amazing, beautiful, except for humpback whales, uh, the gray whales that I worked at make very, very low sounds and uh, not melodic. But I think at least I was able to visualize kind of like what the whales were responding to. Most of the behavior of whales, of course, happens underwater. And, and if you're not diving in really close to them, you're not seeing what's happening, but they have an acoustic world. So I was trying to relate to them in terms of what was going on in their surroundings, boat noise or lack of boat noise, and how the the babies were reacting with their mothers or how potential mates were trying to interact with uh, other mates. So that, I think, made me more fulfilled in the sense that I I was part of their world. Mm, That's really interesting. Could you provide us a little bit more of like the highlights of your studies in terms of, were you able to determine what specific sounds communicated, for example? Yes, I was able to correlate certain behaviors with certain sounds. And at times the behaviors were normal in terms of just the the whales interacting with each other. At other times, it seemed like they were more quiet when other boats were around. And just like humans, I noticed the patterns where whales maybe repeated a a signal, a vocalization. And we can imagine if you and I are having a conversation and there's a loud noise, we either repeat what we just said or we say it really fast, like I just did right now, to just put in the Mm. word before the, the noise blocks us. Or even we're quiet 
until the temporary sound goes away, and then we continue our conversation. So all of those uh, behaviors I, I was observing for five field seasons. So I was on boats and listening to whales for many, many, many hours. One of the most amazing experiences was when a baby whale actually came to our boat and, and lifted their head, and she was looking straight into my eye, and I could see my face reflected in her eyes. So it was a surreal experience. And interestingly mm-hmm. enough, a few months later, there was an author writing a book called The Eye of the Whale. And he was going around the world interviewing people that had had interactions with whales. And, and he interviewed me. Dick Russell is his name and The Eye of the Whale. Mm-hmm. So it is that opportunity to be able to share a moment with uh, a non-human. And definitely the, the whale was curious about me and definitely she was communicating with, with me without sound, but just physical presence. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm sure it was a surreal moment. I've never experienced a whale in its natural habitat, nor in an aquarium, but I'm just kind of conflicted on going to aquariums or even getting on a boat to whale watch. Uh, there's something invasive to the whales. Well, that's, that's how I feel. Mm-hmm. So where were you having most of your field observations in what part of the ocean or the world, I guess? On the west coast of Mexico, on, off the Baja California Peninsula. So it's the Pacific Ocean on the west coast. And these mm-hmm. gray whales migrate between Alaska and Mexico. In Alaska, they feed. And in Mexico, they breed. So they're spending a okay. third of their time in Mexico, a third of the time migrating, and a third of the time feeding. That's fascinating. And I want to ask you so many more questions about whales because there's sort of these mystical animals and there's something kind of magical about them. But I also want to you know, go into talking about sort of how your profession evolved once you graduated. You don't necessarily do work in the marine sciences anymore. You work more in you work for the, the Green Leadership Trust now. So could you tell us a little bit about how your journey evolved once you graduated and kind of what were the factors that influenced your decisions along the way? Well, frankly, as I was specializing in academia, I, I noticed more and more of a separation between writing my results and sharing them with peers, academics, and uh, the relationship I had with everyday people when I was collecting this information with fishermen, with boat captains. And so I saw that I was more interested in relating to the everyday person and sharing our our, our knowledge, what we were learning about the whales, trying to figure out opportunities to to be stewards for the whales. Uh, And like you say, like not be invasive. So working with those captains to establish distances of approach or time of interactions instead of writing papers and uh, scientific journals of my findings. So I decided, even after getting a degree, that I wasn't going to be an academic in an ivory tower where the information is not shared more commonly. And again, thanks to these interactions with uh, men and women in, in the field, I created a nonprofit to protect the Braying Lagoon or to at least make spearhead campaigns to involve kids and, and work on protecting of habitat. So that nonprofit life led me to grassroots organizing. And, and immediately that was much more fulfilling than typing up uh, uh, scientific articles. 
Yeah. And so I, I started doing that grassroots organizing, empowering people, building their knowledge, uh, uh, coaching them to be able to present and represent their communities at at, uh, at events, at, at conferences, and and even uh, fundraise. So I, I was more more drawn mm-hmm. to to that nonprofit world. Yeah. So it sounds like you were building the capacity of these local communities, so they were able to empower themselves to maintain or manage their own natural environment. Yes, yes. And with Green Leadership Trust, I do that now with board members that serve on on environmental groups. So in a sense, it's kind of like a bridge. These board members represent communities, represent stakeholders. Uh, Green Leadership Trust focuses specifically on, on people of color and indigenous people. So there is definitely a gap between how many of these leaders serve on boards of environmental groups. And I work on, on recruiting them, on, on training them, and again, building their skill sets to be able to impact what these environmental groups decide on, on, on who they partner with, how much money they allocate to certain activities, and how they impact these communities that time and time again need the most support. So uh, I moved away from just strictly marine sciences, like you're saying, to uh, the whole environmental movement. So Green Leadership Trust has individuals from that protect wildlife, that protect spaces, that protect air, water, women's rights on the on the environment. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I am very, very happy, even though I've only been doing this as an executive director for seven months. Yeah, that's it's a much needed initiative. I was reading a report from Green 2.0 where they said that people of color don't make up more than 16% of the workforce in environmental focused institutions, whether it's nonprofit or public institutions. And majority of those people of color are often in lower ranking positions. And it's quite rare to actually find a CEO or a board member who's a person of color and or indigenous. So in your effort to try and provide sort of like a support system for the board members, besides the fact that there aren't very many of them, what are the other challenges that these board members face? Well, one very important challenge is that uh, a lot of environmental groups, when they are looking for a board member, they're looking for them to open up doors in terms of resources. And uh, people of color maybe don't have deep as deep pockets as other peers. However, they bring in other assets that are much more valuable, again, the connections and the knowledge Mm -hmm. and the experience of what's happening to them. They're representing those communities. So if the environmental groups are just focused on board members that have celebrity status or or are able to give large contributions to their group, they're definitely missing an opportunity to include people into their campaigns, into their programs that would really make a, a bigger difference for more people. Mm-hmm. And so how, how do you, what are the specific things that the trust provides in terms of building the, the capacity of the board members? Well, besides our, our board matching, which is finding individuals that can serve on boards based on their interests, we also do strengthening our network. So we have peer-to-peer exchange in a sense of sharing 
what it has meant for some board members to serve on uh, on these groups as maybe the first of the, their race or the only one in their group. And then we also share ideas of how to bring up these topics to their board, uh, how to uh, these board members to join maybe a fi- the finance committee or the fundraising committee and, and have these conversations of, hey, are we really determining our budget allocations uh, in an equitable way, in an inclusive way? Mm-hmm. So the board members have an, an, an insider perspective. They're fiduciary responsible for what the organization does. And so the, their voice needs to be heard. We, we, we coach them. And again, through this peer mentoring, we uh, are able to share, hey, this worked for me or this hasn't worked for me. Hey, find uh, a few allies in the board and continue having that conversation in a respectful way and be open to discussions and, and a little pushback, but don't let your foot off, off the pedal in terms of championing your interest in being able to secure funds for those communities that need it. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that you mentioned is that nonprofits tend to prefer board members who have deeper pockets and then they tend to be from non-POC or white communities. So how can we work with these nonprofits to make them think differently about recruiting a board member? When they reach out to the Green Leadership Trust and ask us, hey, I need a greater diversity in my board, we ask them more questions on how they're going to make that board member comfortable and suggest to them to not recruit just one board member to check off a box, but recruit a cohort two or three. Mm-hmm. So again, to we have conversations with them in terms of the culture of the board. And the culture has to avoid definitely microaggressions. It has to avoid implicit bias. Mm-hmm. So this, that's like unconsciously saying things or deciding things without taking a bigger look at, at the whole spectrum of opportunities. We ask them in terms of how do they help board members that don't have funds attend board meetings or, or be able to serve on boards through uh, reimbursement or travel, or perhaps, or even mm-hmm. translation opportunities if it's necessary. So we are slowly, slowly but, but surely suggesting to, to these environmental groups to look at the culture of the board. If it's not very clicky, if it's not very open to an input of, of, of new ideas and a first fresh perspectives, then it's definitely not something that our our members will be interested in serving. Right. But if if they are considering those aspects, then they're taking steps towards doing that. Right. And and the latest thing that we did is that we shared with these executive directors and CEOs a performance evaluation metric. So they're they're evaluated by the board on their annual performance. And we suggested a few questions in in our tool to be assessed on whether they are considering these things, whether they are partnering with communities, whether they not just go to the community and and, and do a campaign and then leave, but whether they are like reaching out to plan what's best for the community, whether they are including the leaders of those community in the preparation, in the planning stages. So those metrics we now have in our CEO evaluation tool. And we actually have our first cohort of uh, CEOs that have adopted some of those measures into their annual performance. Oh, that's fantastic. One of the things that you mentioned is you try to work with the nonprofits to create inclusive environments within the board. 
And the other element that you mentioned of creating an inclusive environment is to help them check their microaggressions as well as implicit biases. You know, we all have biases and they're implicit, so we don't necessarily know when they're in action, right? So how does the leadership trust work with board members to bring awareness around issues of microaggression and implicit bias? And how do we kind of create action around, you know, its awareness and then making some sort of like acting on that kind of bias or microaggression? Well, the easy, quick, temporary fix is doing some trainings to staff and to upper management. But that just Mm -hmm. scratches the surface and just uh, highlighting that there's a maybe an issue that they didn't weren't even aware. So you move further, and it's all in numbers, right? So you suggest to create maybe a diversity committee within the board, and then that committee is not just one person of color that it gets pigeonholed to serve on that committee, but they have two or three other allies which may not be Mm -hmm. uh, persons of color, or that they may Mm -hmm. be looking to attract more individuals. So when when there's more voices saying, this is the kind of trainings that we need, this is the kind of interactions that we need to foster, then the balance starts tipping favorably. And it becomes first nature to just, yeah, consider these things when you're doing hiring or when you're determining on a particular program to embark on. So It's all about numbers, and we suggest uh, the creation of maybe even management positions, diversity officers. But a committee at the board level definitely helps when they are sharing their experiences. We have also another document amongst our resources that is called Best Practices for Diversifying Your Board. And we have the opportunity for our members to go to these boards and present this document. And it's just 10 tips on, on, on how to be more inclusive in your board. And, and like I said, one of them is includes creating that, that committee. Mm. Yeah, I think everything that you've suggested or your model essentially, I think, would be beneficial even in a normal workplace or creating inclusiveness in a normal workplace or it's applicable rather. One of the reasons why I think that you're kind of like a good fit for the leadership trust is because you mentioned that you've had years of experience working in the nonprofit world. A lot of us environmentalists, formally trained or not, will at some point have an interaction with a nonprofit working in it or partnering with it. I'm curious to know what has your experience been working with nonprofits? And I know it's been, you know, several decades, but if there's a way that you can provide us with some highlights or a a summary of those experiences? Well, the experience is the same that these board members of Green Leadership Trust uh, face, where, again, I was sometimes the only person of color in that environmental group, uh, environmental organization, or I was the first one or the only. And fortunately, uh, some of these nonprofits that I work with are international. And so that allowed some diversity in that sense. But, But now... I think my experience is I am surrounded now by, by peers, by folks that have shared some of these journeys. And we are all in, in favor of, of the environmental groups past and present to put their money where their mouth is in the sense of allocating resources for, for us to, to recruit more folks, compensate us for, for our time. And there's now 
a growth of uh, consultants doing diversity work that we are suggesting to these environmental groups to to reach out. So some of the nonprofits that I work with were international, and that alleviated some of the disparity in racial makeup. But I did feel outnumbered, and not in a frightening way, but in a way that my tasks were more like I was merging into a white culture of priorities. And and no, we we have our different styles, our different idiosyncrasies, even the way we come up with decisions which are less Western-oriented, maybe a little bit more of, of the social aspect of that. And I was able to interject some of my style into, even though these nonprofits that I work with were international, they were also small in the number of size of, of staff. So it's different to feel alone if you're just one of 100, but I was one of 14 or one of seven. So it wasn't that big of a problem for me. Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody who is in the past position that you were in on how to navigate such spaces? Well, to reach out to peers. So definitely don't feel like like you're by yourself and that make sure that, that you feel comfortable expressing yourself, expressing your opinions, bringing up your heritage, your culture. And in a way, there's these networks now that are slowly but surely growing in a number of individuals. So reach out if it's Green Leadership Trust, excellent. We work more with uh, senior level management, but there's also young professionals of color organizations out there. And I think don't despair. I think that the the balance is fortunately, people are realizing that diversity makes sense. To have diverse uh, makeup of employees and of board members is beneficial to everybody. It invites innovation, it invites new perspectives, and, and it allows you to be more representative of the communities where you're working on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I wish I had some sort of support system whenever I did feel like I was the only one in the room. And I'm hoping that this podcast can sort of serve as uh, some element of that support system for others who may feel like they're the only ones of their kind in the room, whether it's culturally unique or quote-unquote different, or even like from a perspective standpoint. So I'm really glad that we do have institutions such as the Leadership Trust to kind of be that comforting blanket for people of color and indigenous people in the environmental space. And you did mention there are also other organizations that provide support for young professionals. And could you mention who they are? One of them, their acronym is EPOC, EPOC, Environmental Professionals of Color. Yeah. Another one that doesn't just focus on people of color, but is very, very proactive in recruiting minorities is called ELP, Environmental Leadership Program. Okay. And then there's local chapters of some of these groups in major cities. So mm-hmm. a quick internet search will yield some of these names. Okay. Yep. And we'll provide links to those as well. So moving on to understand a little bit more about your experiences in the environmental space, would you wish you had known before you started on this journey? I wish I'd known that it is hard to make the case, even though, like I just told you, I believe it is a (laughs) no-brainer that you need diversity. Mm -hmm. To be able to convey this need to funders, it has been a slow process. And maybe also because it takes time 
to build these capacities and to see a difference. Again, it's not just a matter of recruiting a person into your board. It's a matter of that person being effective and efficient and changing the mindset of the organization. So I wish I'd known that it takes much longer than I had hoped for. Yeah. I think for me, sometimes I wish I had known that the kind of idealism that I had as an environmentalist doesn't necessarily reflect in reality. I thought of the environmental movement as something that represented the equal values of all human communities and the natural environment. And what I have seen, based on my experiences, the reality is completely different. In some ways, it's been shocking. And I wish school could have prepared me a little bit more for the realities of that. But I I totally understand where you're coming from. No, but that's kind of like what I was saying in terms of when I was in school, it was too artificial. It was just too isolated when I was writing Mm -hmm. those scientific reports and and it wasn't connecting to the everyday person. So school did not prepare me to to relate to everyday people. It trained me to to be disciplined in my work ethic, but the skills that I learned at school were not applicable to the reality of, like you say, of the world. And then when you're out in the world, some people cannot just focus on the environment because they have other priorities, much larger priorities, safety from violence, drug use, Mm. poverty. So people have to prioritize where they're thinking and where they're acting. So it does seem like uh, the world has other more urgent things, even though for us environmentalists, it is definitely clear that without a safe and clean environment, nothing else matters. doesn't matter how much money you have, if you can't drink water or if you can't breathe the air. Right. And it just makes me wonder, why is it that CEOs of large corporations that are contributing the most to greenhouse gas emissions, why don't they think that their business practices are impacting the future for their children and their grandchildren as well? And maybe it's, I I don't know what the psychology behind that is. Well, they're not not seeing the direct impact every day. If these CEOs lived in Superfund sites or in a polluted river, they would take stock of what's happening, but they live removed from where these major environmental problems are. But climate change affects everybody anywhere. So the more forest fires there are out there, the more extreme droughts and extreme floodings, people cannot escape the reality that it's going to also impact them eventually. But right now at, at their comfort of their house, they don't see it immediately. Yeah. So in that same vein, what advice would you give to other environmental professionals who want to make a change, whether it's in academia or even, you know, working for a nonprofit or even in the private sector? Well, the best advice I can, I can give them is to follow that passion. I was often told that environment would not make me rich or be a sustainable decision, right? even by, by loved ones, by family members. So to not give up on that, Nowadays, whenever I explain about the activities that I do, people are like, oh, you're, you're so altruistic. Oh, you give so much of yourself. But it's, it's really not that I'm, I'm doing it for my kids too. I'm doing it for our own health. So to, right. to follow that passion, it will be a, a, a slow journey, but at the same time, it will be very rewarding. Yeah. 
you kind of touched on this. For those who are considering a profession in the environment, you're definitely going to have people who are going to dissuade or discourage you from taking that path. And they're going to tell you that there's no money in it and just to follow your passion. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think like for me, what I, once I finished school, the reality of getting a job really hit and surviving, what kind of advice or resources would you provide to somebody who is considering a profession in the environment? Like what should they truly think about before they embark on this profession? Well, unfortunately, I think uh, passion will not be enough. Yeah. It will be a strong a motivator. But just like that person before grad school recommended, you, you do need to build on a skill set, have a tool that you can provide. Mm-hmm. If it's a marketing expertise with an environmental slant, go for it. If it's a communications, if it's legal, there's a lot of environmental lawyers. If it's recruiting, HR. So. Find a skill set that that is in, in you in, in the sense of what you do good or what you can be trained on and apply it to environmental causes. Yeah. The environmental field needs professionals of all sorts of skill sets. They need good writers. They need good communicators. They need people's skills. And they even need people that know how to operate chainsaws. So technical schools are also very useful for cleaning up rivers. You never know when somebody may need some knowledge of machinery, mechanics. So Mm -hmm. having a skill, I think, will help you focus on the environment with that skill. Yeah, that's good advice. We're going to move now into our lightning round where I'll just ask you a set of four questions and whatever comes to your mind first, if you feel comfortable sharing it with us, please do. (laughs) So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? I like reading historical books and definitely Undaunted Courage by Stephen Ambrose that narrates the the journey of Lewis and Clark, Mm. commissioned by Thomas Jefferson to explore the West. That was inspiring to me in terms of going out to the unknown. And again, it's very vivid in the sense of the interaction with nature there. For my particular, oh, and then watched, uh, again, on, on a sense of historic movies, I just watched the 1917 movie, which is really good cinematography of World War One. But it's not all war movies that make, uh, or war themes that make up history. I read a book recently, This is an Uprising by the Angler Brothers, mm-hmm. and, and it's about how nonviolent revolt is shaping the 21st century. So movement building is something that I like reading. Mm, Yeah, we'll definitely include those in the notes as well. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Writing everything down. I take notes of everything. And so I'm very visual and that helps me organize my train of thought and and even for follow-up. So even now that people use a computer and the processor a lot, I write notes on notebooks a lot and, and, and refer back to them often. Yeah. Me too. For some reason, I think it was just the way we were taught back in primary school is we just took a copious amount of notes, whether they were dictated to us or otherwise. So I think that's a good habit to have. What's the best piece of advice you've received or a good piece of advice you've received? When I'm depressed or frustrated, 
my wife has recommended to look at the bigger picture. Imagine how this is going to influence two, three years, five years from now, or your whole life from now. So don't drown in small buckets of water. That is how she phrases it. There will be times that you will be frustrated with something, but if you take a step back, and also, again, leaning on, on, on people that care for you or, or that have similar experiences, that allows you to surpass that obstacle or to put it into perspective, frankly, and realize that we only have 70, 80 years in this earth, and there's much more important and fulfilling things to do than be frustrated with a particular issue. Yeah, that's very true, especially working in the environmental space where it seems like every day there is just a bad piece of news about how ecosystems are collapsing. And sometimes it may feel futile that you are just one person trying to make a difference. But yes, remembering that there's a bigger picture is important to sort of just get one centered, essentially. So that's really good advice. And finally, here is uh, what is your superpower? No, I don't have any. Well, my kids, maybe they think I have superpowers. But um, <laughs> actually, I think it's my humor, to be yeah. honest. I'm able to feel comfortable in many different kinds of situations, mm-hmm. whether it's with a farmer or whether it's a professor at a university or different kinds of professionals. Yeah, I feel comfortable, easy with folks, and I listen. I'm relatable, so my superpowers are making people feel comfortable and feeling comfortable myself. That's a, it's a very rare superpower. And uh, thank you for sharing <laughs> it with us. All right. So as we come to an end here, I wanted to know where we can find you or follow you on your journey with the Green Leadership Trust. Well, the Green Leadership Trust has its website, mm-hmm. www.greenleadershiptrust.org. I physically am in North Central Ohio. I work from a home office, but I'm always available to... Uh, I, I do travel often for these board trainings that I promote. So uh, people can just reach out to me through my email address. And if there's interest in in joining our trust, I definitely would welcome opportunities to talk with folks. Yes, yes. And you were also very kind in sharing information with me on how I can apply for a board position. And I think for me, I always thought that that was something that I didn't know if I could actually It just seemed like something over there that I can't reach, in a sense, because, again, I guess I don't see very many board members of color. But thank you for sending that information to me and kind of providing me some support on how I can approach that. That's very much appreciated. Finally, is there anything else that you would like to add before we end our session here? No, I appreciate the opportunity to share with you in your podcast. I don't do this that often. But in a sense, it also helps me reflect on uh, the purpose of my life. So thank you very much. And I look forward to continue our friendship. Yeah. And thank you so much for sharing your experiences and for doing so very candidly. And I think it's these type of stories that really help people get a better understanding or a holistic view of life and the world and our work in the environmental space. So I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, 
head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.